A little bit later this morning, we're going to celebrate communion together. So you're invited, not obligated, of course, to help yourself to a beverage of your choice and a cookie or a cracker. And together we will observe uh, the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus. And if you happen to be a searching person and have yet to place your saving faith in Jesus, um, you're not obligated. In fact, this uh, celebration or, or observance is actually for the believing community, uh, for those who've decided to follow Jesus. And so uh, we will again, enjoy Holy Communion together at the end of our scripture talk this morning. So we are continuing our series called Kings and Queens based on uh, Israel's ancient leaders. And uh, we're reminding ourselves of some of the things they got right and some of the things they didn't get so right. And uh, this isn't a series on leadership, even though there are uh, a lot of applications around leadership. This is a series about how we can get better in life. And uh, scripture says that uh, men and women's lives have been recorded for us. Uh, again, some of the wonderful wins and some of the losses uh, so that we can learn from them and build the best life of faith possible. And um, so we hope that you will track with us throughout the whole series. Last week, we started with a series on the very first king of Israel, King Saul, and we learned that uh, he didn't manage his unmet needs very well. In fact, he was known for being a person who was jealous and angry and he was insecure and he was impulsive and uh, there were a host of um, character traits about the first king of Israel that were problematic. And uh, we learned that again, with unresolved, unmet needs, um, if we don't process them properly um, and we don't address the interior aspects of our own life, it won't take long before what's inside will spill outside and affect not only our own quality of life, but the quality of life um, of those around us. And so if you uh, missed last week, you can catch up on our YouTube channel again as well. Um, there was a king who did it right. And uh, this series is going to take us right through the Lent season, uh, which is the 40 days leading up to, uh, up to Easter. And uh, we are going to, again, celebrate the King of Thorns on Good Friday and the King of Life on Easter Sunday. And our passage to ponder is actually not taken from the Older Testament, but from the New Testament. And it focuses again on the King of Kings, King Jesus. And uh, this is a passage taken from John's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 36. We'll take this one with us throughout the series. Jesus said these words. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. It has a very different orientation. He says, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, because that's how this world operates. Jesus says, but now my kingdom is from another place. And so a whole different set of values, a whole different set of priorities, and like I mentioned, a very different um, operational system, so to speak, when we consider the kingdom of God and King Jesus, who is over that kingdom. Um, so today we'll take a look at a whole chapter. Yes, I said it, a whole chapter. First Samuel chapter 24, I will read it in its entirety and uh, make a few comments and draw your attention to a few points that I think will be uh, incredibly relevant for us. And then we will fast forward into 2 Samuel. So 1 Samuel 24, David is not the king. Saul is still the king. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David is the king, and it's the back end of his leadership, and he wants to begin showing again uh, some kindness to a person. And both 1 Samuel 24 and 2 Samuel chapter 9 are connected by the last verse or two of chapter 24, and then the first uh, verse of 2 Samuel chapter 9. So you'll discover that as we move along. Okay, so I have two thoughts for us this morning, and they're taken from both these uh, lengthy passages of Scripture, but the words will be on the screen, and I'll read them for us in just a moment. So here's our first thought for consideration. David is not naive, but he is trusting. 
And uh, those two can be very different ideas. To be naive uh, is associated again with um, maybe being inexperienced and uh, maybe being somewhat short-sighted. Um, uh, trusting, on the other hand, is somebody who holds um, a high esteem, somebody in high esteem, and believes the best about them. A naive person can believe the best about them too, but maybe without substance. Uh, somebody who trusts somebody else believes the best about them, and there's substantial reasons why they do. And so uh, let me read our text for us, and then we'll make a few comments and apply some principles to where we find ourselves today. All right, so 1 Samuel chapter uh, 24. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. So we'll just pause there for a sec. Again, just a reminder of last week. Uh, Saul is jealous of David. He's angry, he's impulsive, he's insecure. And he hurls a spear at David twice. And uh, David's on the run. And Saul is hunting him down. And uh, David's literally running for his life. And he has a few companions with him along the way. But Saul has sent out like 3,000 uh, military personnel, and Saul's leading the charge. This is how aggressive Saul is about trying to wipe David off the planet. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men, that's interesting the way the text describe it, as it happened. That's, that's a way that the, the biblical writer is saying, in God's providence, as it seemed to happen, um, he says that, um, uh, where is it? Saul went into a cave to relieve himself, but as it happened, David and his men were hiding further back in that very cave. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to David. Today, the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward, cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe, but then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the King. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, my Lord the King. And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. He has high regard and respect for the office of the king. He says, um, why do you listen to the people who say, I am trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes, it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It's a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting uh, for me to kill me. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you are doing, to, uh, trying to do to me, but I will never harm you, David says. As that old proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds. So you can be sure I will never harm you. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway, David asks. Should he spend his time chasing one who is as worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate and he will rescue me from your power. It says here, when David had finished speaking, Saul called back, is that really you, my son, David? Then he began to cry. And he said to David, you're a better man than I am for you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you have been amazingly kind to me today for when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for the kindness you have shown me today. And now I realize that you are surely going to be king. 
and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. Now swear to me by the Lord that when this happens, you will not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. So David promised this to Saul with an oath. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went back to their stronghold. Uh, pretty powerful story there about a man who had the opportunity to return evil for evil, so to speak, or to bring about some measure of revenge or retribution. Because remember, if you're David and you're on the run, you just wonder if it's just a matter of time before David and his 3,000 military personnel are going to catch up to you and, and, uh, and deal with you swiftly. And so David has the opportunity to self-protect. He has the opportunity to maybe even the score somewhat. And, and David refuses to do it. In fact, the text tells us that he was conscience-stricken by just cutting the edge of Saul's garment. And so there's three principles that come to mind um, from this passage that help us with this whole idea of learning how to trust. Here's the first one. Trusting God, and it's all in the context of learning to trust God. Trusting God helps us wisely discern the voices of others. Um, David's companions, they are a um, vocal a group of people who are trying to move David in a certain direction. And then again, King Saul speaks to David at the very end about his intentions. He seems to be sort of advocating for peace uh, with David. But because of David's high regard for God and because he trusts him so well, he's able to wisely discern the qualitative nature of the voices he's listening to. Um, when we understand the ways of God, and we have embraced them for ourselves, we can more easily discern the voices of others and recognize them for what they are. Um, Groupthink, it's been called, is very powerful. When a group of people begin uh, speaking a certain way about a certain subject, they begin talking among themselves, they begin to circle the wagons around a certain ideology, and all of a sudden, everybody starts thinking similar thoughts. David does not subscribe to groupthink. David is an individual thinker. He is differentiating himself from the rest of the voices of the group who are urging him to move in a certain direction, but David wouldn't go there. Uh, it's important that we have a firm, clear sense of direction about what's most important to us. And those of us who've signed up to follow Jesus, we prioritize what's most important to God as being most important to us. And so David understood that this would have been a sin against God and a sin against the king. And because of his high regard for authority, and that comes out in this passage really, really clearly, David pushes back against the voices. Now, remember, these are David's companions. These are his friends. These are people who are digging in to sort of help protect David. And David chooses again to, um, to resist. And he discerns wisely because of his high trust in God. David is a man of principle. Speaking of God, he says to King Saul, he is my advocate. God is my advocate, and he will rescue me from your power. That's a, a voice of confidence. He's declaring what he believes to be a powerful, good God who will look after David and that he doesn't have to take matters into his own hands. And so um, trusting God helps us wisely discern the voices of others. Trusting God keeps us from seeking revenge and retaliation, which we just talked about. He has a very high view of God's authority. And I would also suggest this to you. David also had a very high regard for human authority as well. Um, he said, who am I to take out God's anointed? God put you in that office as king. It is not my place to take you out. And so there is a sense of resignation within David where he says, um, I am going to entrust myself, my future, and the king into God's capable hands. And um, David recognized that there was a king 
over King Saul. And you know, we do well to do likewise, to understand that the prime ministers and the presidents and the premiers, uh, the people who lead their um, provinces and countries, they are under, ultimately under the king of the universe. And the Bible says that he elevates one and he brings down another, that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And so David understood that and he was not going to transgress the king of the universe and touch the king that God had appointed. God is very capable of dealing with leaders. And so trusting God keeps us from seeking revenge and retaliation. I don't know where you might be in your life these days, but sometimes if there is a measure of injustice or some form of wrongdoing or something that's just been a a hurtful experience, sometimes the human inclination is to want to even the score or to want to strike back in some way. And scripture teaches us through David's example that we can trust God who always judges rightly. And when we start meddling with those kinds of um, uh, retribution acts, uh, we, we end up oftentimes complicating matters and messing things up. All right, one more. Trusting God enables us to make some big commitments. Uh, David promises to be good to Saul's family. Remember again the context. Saul's hunting David down, and he asks him to be good to his family when one day he becomes king. And David says, of course. Like there's benevolence in David's heart. Uh, even though somebody has um, put him in their scopes um, toward hate and, and annihilation, uh, David returns good for evil. And um, at the end of the inter- interaction, King, King uh, Saul is inviting David to look after his future descendants. And, and David obliges and says, of course. Um, and so the question begs, why would Saul even ask this? So if you're back in the ancient world, when dynasties changed hands, there was like full-on extermination. Anybody who had a biological path to the throne was, was um, executed. And so Saul understands that if there's going to be a change of hands, uh, which he anticipates, that his descendants would be well looked after, well cared for. And it's in the heart of David that David would, would do that. So one final comment about trust before we turn to the tender-hearted part of David. Um, it takes a long time to earn trust, and, uh, but it can be forfeited in just a moment. And we find in the story of King Saul and David, David goes back into the wilderness, Saul returns home. David didn't follow Saul back home because he didn't trust him. Um, He wasn't naive, he trusted God, but he understood what was in Saul's heart. Uh, We do well to, um, again, earn the trust of the people that we live within a relational circle with. And we need to remember that uh, we can forfeit that trust in a moment in time. And it takes a long time to earn trust back. And, And David was not there yet as it relates to trusting the king. He trusted the king of the universe, but he didn't trust King Saul. Um, we, we need to be careful people in who we entrust ourselves to. And when we evaluate the character of others, uh, with grace, of course, uh, we learn what's in the hearts of people by watching their behavior and their track record. Patterns are often um, replicated. And so when somebody has a certain trajectory in their life, we need to be wise enough to understand where that plays out. And often what's happened in the past will happen in the future. And uh, unless somebody takes intentional ownership and shifts the direction of their life. And so we want to be the kinds of people who are trustworthy. And so um, David was not naive, but he did, he did trust and he trusted God most importantly. Number two, and this will be our last uh, thought for consideration. David is not weak, but he is tenderhearted. Second uh, Samuel chapter nine. Now he is the king. Okay, we're fast forwarding here through the story of first and second Samuel. He is now the king. And uh, remember, Saul says, be kind to my family. Here's David. One day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Jonathan was Saul's son and was David's friend. 
He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both feet. Very interesting commentary. Yes, he's alive, but he's somewhat damaged. Where is he? The king asked. In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Machir, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Machir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed down to the ground or bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. I love this about David. Here's what he says. Don't be afraid. David said, don't be afraid. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table, David said. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba replied, yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant and I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table, like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And from then on, all the, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, says it a second time, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. It's a wonderful story. One of my most favorite stories in the Bible is David, who is a tender-hearted king, who has power and privilege, doesn't allow it to mess with his head, mess with his heart, but he remains tender-hearted and compassionate. And he's a man of integrity who remembers the promises he made to someone else, and he keeps them. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of David as king. So again, just a few thoughts, and then we'll celebrate communion together. Tender-hearted people. So David trusts. He's not naive, but he trusts. And he's also tender-hearted. Tender-hearted people keep their promises. They do this because they know that if they break their word, they're going to hurt people. David kept his promise to Saul by being kind to Mephibosheth. His loyal friendship with Jonathan also informed his um, compassionate heart so that he would do the right thing. And, and the right thing is keeping our promises. You know, keeping your word is a sign of integrity. And a bre breaking our word is also a sign of lack of integrity. David had integrity and he, he kept his, his promises. Secondly, tender-hearted people express kindness, compassion, and they disarm others. Uh, a test of someone's character is how they treat people who can never pay them back. Um, how they look after or look out for people who are on the other side of power or the underside of power and uh, where, where they can be easily ignored or overlooked. It is a test of one's character on how we treat those who uh, many people set aside. And, and David was a man who was full of kindness, compassion, and, and he disarmed other people. Uh, when, when people are tender-hearted, the last thing they ever want to do, even if they are in a position of privilege and power, is to communicate any form of intimidation to someone else. Because if they do that and they did it unintentionally, it would cause their heart to be so saddened and grieved by it. Because they would never ever, a tender-hearted person would never ever want to intimidate 
anyone else or cause them to be afraid in any way. Uh, thirdly, tender-hearted people make their table longer or larger to include other people. Uh, I love that about this story. David opens up his relational circle as wide as he, as he can to include Mephibosheth. And then he looks after him, even outside the palace, to make sure that he's well cared for. And uh, I, I love that about this story, is that people of faith in the one true God are always opening up circles. They're not closing them. They're opening up circles to allow other people to be a part of their relational circle. We all have our limits, of course. David had his too, but David opened his circle because of his integrity and the promise he had made. And so um, tender-hearted people feel the sting of what an outsider experiences. Somebody who has um, maybe some limitations or somebody who has a lack of resources. And uh, tender-hearted people move toward them with compassion. They invite, them in, they invite them inside the circle. All right, the last one is this. Tender-hearted people use their influence to help others. We all have influence. Uh, we all have a voice. We all have the capacity to reach in some way. Um, we have resources that we can share with others. And if we're going to be remaining tender-hearted, we need to be the kind of person who just doesn't offer prayers for others, which is important. Uh, but we can um, act, follow up those prayers by doing something tangible to help others. So um, being a person of trust, high regard for God, and being somebody who is tender-hearted is an ongoing process. Nobody has arrived to a place where I fully trust. We're moving in that direction, hopefully trusting more and more each day, uh, the one true God who's worthy of our trust. And then also being tender-hearted, we have our moments when we're either too busy or we're skimming in life and our hearts become a little bit crusty. With the help of the Spirit and with the tutoring of the Word of God, we can become or remain tender-hearted. And I thought the table was a wonderful way for us to move towards communion because the table uh, represents something. In fact, the table is a place of acceptance. It's a place of belonging. Uh, it's a place of um, covenant making. Um, and in fact, Jesus himself, on the night he was betrayed, he, he took the bread and he took the cup and he said, this is my body, this is my blood. And he said, this is a brand new agreement, a brand new covenant that he was making uh, with anyone who would put their saving faith in, in, in God through Christ. And uh, so this might be the first time you ever eat and drink, um, which is an expression of your saving faith in Jesus. Uh, this is not for good people. This is for people who need to be saved and forgiven and people who are reminding themselves again that their salvation is not in themselves, but in what Christ has done for them. And so um, if you have put your saving faith in Jesus and you're learning what it means to follow him, uh, I wanna encourage you to, uh, to eat and drink with us in just a moment. But as our church community does, we recite the Apostles' Creed, which reminds us of the content of our faith. Jesus himself is the substance of our faith. The content um, in many ways resembles these summary statements. So let me read this. And if you're in your living room or wherever you may be watching, I wanna encourage you to recite this too. It's good to say it. So this is what we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And if you believe that to be true, would you say amen with me? Amen. All right. So we hold a cracker or a cookie, symbolic of the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he took our place, 
Our sins are forever, past, present, and future, atoned for because of his sacrifice. So with high regard for the broken body of the Lord Jesus, would you join me by eating the cracker or the cookie? And you hold a cup as well, symbolic of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. It covers our sins and uh, his life was laid down. It wasn't taken from him. He died for crimes, for sins he didn't commit. And thanks be to God today that we are um, absolved of our sins uh, by putting our saving faith in him and turning from our old life and embracing our new life in Jesus. And so would you join me by drinking from the cup, symbolic of his shed blood. Father, thank you today for your word that always has something relevant to say to us about what it means to live a trust-filled life and to be people who are tender-hearted. And thanks be to God for Jesus who laid his life down for the sins of the whole world, including our own. We pray God as we uh, move from this gathering online to other parts of our uh, day, we pray that you would help us to remember how loved we are and help us, Lord, to spend the rest of our lives um, expressing our gratitude and devotion to you for all that has been done for us. So God, we pray all of this in Jesus' holy name, amen.